When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Marin Katusa, and I run Katusa Research, and we're also the largest independent financiers and commodities worldwide. The thesis of the rise of America, remaking the world order, is a very contrarian, outside-the-box look. But as I've raised billions of dollars and invested in this sector, uh, there's never been a bigger time in America's history where such division, such lack of trust in not just the government, but the media, has really polarized each of the different sides where families are going against each other, um, co-workers, friends. And, and people are really starting to globally think that the, you know, the peak of the American empire is behind it and that China is going to overtake it as the most powerful nation in the world. I'm here to say that's not the case. And I lay out in my book using my style, very analytical approach on why, yes, America's made a lot of mistake. Yes, it's got its back against the wall, but it's by nowhere close to being done. And it, its peak is in the years ahead, not in the years in the past. What's your outlook on gold, silver, and Bitcoin? So we're at, you know, 1875 gold as today. Um, that is a phenomenal price for the, the right miners, if you know what you're doing. You know, when you talk about all-in sustaining costs at a mine, you have, you know, cash costs, then you got your all-in sustaining costs when you include everything else. Um, if you stick to the lower quartile, safe jurisdictions, positive swap line nations, right areas, with the right type of deposits, with the right management team, um, 1875 is, you know, as long as it doesn't go any lower, this is a dream come true. Do I see it going higher? Sure, I do. Look at look at the money going on and, and everyone real. When? I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. I don't need gold to go higher. It's fantastic where it is. It's made me a fortune as is. And if you just stick to that price. Now, if am I a believer in the, you know, the uh, conspiracy theories and all these reasons of suppressing gold? Hell no. It's just about cost of capital, all of that. So, you know, once these Goldman Sachs and these bankers can figure out a way that it's easier to make money going long, they'll go long. And then if they want to go short, if it's easier to make money, they'll do that. Essentially, the gold sector has been much more retail oriented than say institutional oriented, and that will switch um, as people diversify. But specifically from a physical retail demand, it's going to be outside of the US. Um, that's, you know, if you're in Turkey, Russia, Venezuela, uh, look at what's happened to their currencies. Gold and Bitcoin has been a great way to uh, diversify out of the you know, devaluation of the currencies. You'll continue to see that. The average American, specifically the millennials, aren't really into gold. It's not in their mindset, habit, style, social thing. That, that's not the, the sector. So um, crypto is more attractive to them. 
yet they don't really focus on the impact on the environmental aspect. They think the miners are worse, but we can get into that argument later. Um, so gold's going to kind of hobble around. It's going to go up and down. But you know, if you invest in companies that all in sustaining costs are under 1100 bucks, uh, that's what I use for our evaluation numbers. Those are great margins. I'm not an expert at crypto. I've put millions of dollars with a good friend who runs that portfolio for me. Uh, I'm well aware that if you don't control the key, you don't own it, but it's someone I trust greatly. Uh, is a phenomenal, it's actually one of Raul's close friends. Um, so that's, you know, would I look at the miners? No. Um, I know a lot of the executives who run these deals because they've come to me for capital. Uh, there are some good guys that are trying to do go green and, and go there. Uh, look, your guess is as good as mine. I focus on what my advantage is and I don't have an advantage in crypto. Look, the the retail, even if the 70,000 or 100,000 Wall, Wall Street bets crew in the silver market want to take on the conspiracy theorists and all that, it's just too big of a market. Okay, and, and you look at the paper market versus the physical market. One of my closest friends built the largest producing silver company on the planet. And $25 silver is paradise for these guys. Again, all I'm telling people is take the emotion uh, of what you want to see and what you believe will be just to what is. And, and when you look at what is the cost of production and what would be a respectable return on capital from that standpoint, and always look at the lowest cost producers, that's how low it can go for a while is the price point of the lowest quartile producers. It's happened in gold, it's happened, well, in oil, we had a crazy thing in April where it went negative and that was a short-term blip. But generally speaking, if you invest in a physical commodity, focus on, you know, when you model your numbers, focus on the lowest cost quartile. And there's companies out there like Pan American that make a fortune at $20 silver. $25 silver, whew, that is paradise. So do they need 40, $50 oil, uh, silver? No, it, they're not gonna reject it. But if you're investing in projects that need that, you probably might wanna sharpen your pencil a bit more. What's your outlook on precious metals miners worldwide? Traveling the world for 20 years and you know you, the, the mantra used to be, go to where the gold is. Um, so places like the DRC, Venezuela, uh, Argentina, Peru, uh, across Africa, uh, in oil, when I went to Iraq and the Middle East, um, you went where the oil was. And as the globalization started to really take a hold in the late 90s, early 2000s, people recognized build and produce what China needs. And that was the engine. As the North American, as mainly North American resource companies funding all of this development worldwide, I noticed there started to become a backlash from environmental, from the, the locals, from the governments. And, and that's when I started realizing that, wait a second, um, this isn't going to work out the way these analysts work out in their financial models. Uh, the risk adjustment, my background's math. And I started realizing that these analysts would take a discount rate, uh, something in Ecuador, at the same discount rate as something in Nevada or Ontario or Quebec. And that just didn't make sense to me. As I started looking at the numbers, about 85% of all of the capital raised for the exploration and development 
of the resource industry in the stock market is towards this, what I call negative swap line nations. And yet you look at what's going to happen is these companies are funding this based off of what they expect their cash flows to be, not realizing that the royalties are going to change, the tax rates are going to change, the ownership structures are going to change. And a year and a bit ago, I published this whole, you know, the war on gold and the positive swap lines versus the negative swap lines and breaking about where the resource on these publicly listed North American companies, where their exposure to risk is. And every week we're seeing new takeovers from nationalization or increasing in taxes. And that really started me to think, wait a second, what, let's go look back to these, you know, uh, there's an old saying in mining, the best place to look for new gold is in the shadows of a head frame, meaning where there used to be lots of gold. And, and you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, the big companies went into the emerging markets and there was so much low hanging fruit in North America that is de-risk with the existing infrastructure that hasn't ever seen modern technology deployed to you know put it together. So all these pieces together, being the largest financier in the game, independent against the banks, being an investor myself in this, being involved in actually building mining companies. You know, there's a lot of gurus out there that talk that you know don't even know the difference of an underground or an open pit mine to actually go from the beginning to exploration, to development, through permitting, to build this thing, you really learn the trade the hard way. And I've made lots of mistakes, but you, you figure things out. And I just am trying to lay out this concept to people that be careful on the risk analysis that these analysts are using. For example, I have not seen a single research report in the resource industry from Goldman Sachs to any of the big institutions in Canada or Australia that have included in their MPV analysis the liability, which within five years, it's going to be legislated that all companies are going to have to report as a liability their carbon emissions. Okay. Now, how does that affect the corporation on the MPV? Now, if you're a big pension fund or, or, or a private equity lender, that changes the game big time on a cash flow basis, especially when many of these companies have 80% of their exposure to negative swap line nations that, that I believe are going to, you know, change the table, flip the table on the royalty rates and, and the tax rates. And as these commodities go up, which I do believe they will, the government is going to change the game. And, you know, look at what Mongolia did with Rio Tinto and Oyotogoi. I think that's the model you're going to see, which was, you know, the rules were changed every time the price of copper and gold went higher. And as they got closer and closer to production, the rules changed. That's what you're going to start seeing. It, and we're seeing it in real time. So that's essentially the, the thesis. Well, look, not all positive swap line regions are the same. Just like in the U.S., not every state for mining is the same. You, you have to do your due diligence. So it's not like one rule applies to all. But um, am I going to go build a mine in Western Europe? No. Uh, first of all, there's no deposits that you want to focus on in Western Europe that are worth that value. But secondly, go where your dollars are respected and appreciated and will grow, number one. But you also have to focus on tier one world-class deposits and focus on tier one people. Everything starts with the people. So my thesis is, why do I need to... I've been there and done it. Over 116 countries, worked with the biggest players in the game. Why do I want to put body armor and go on to the Middle East and evaluate an oil well when the government changes the game and takes 96% of the revenue? Doesn't make sense. Or look what's going on in certain parts in Africa. Uh, and I'm not labeling all places in Africa are bad. 
That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the market is creating these MPV5s and mispricing risk. And I, and I think that when you see what is happening in certain areas in the US, certain areas in Canada, certain areas in Australia, why would you take these risks that, you know, infrastructure risks? There's places in Africa that bankers are talking about uranium. Yeah, there's no doubt there's a lot of uranium there, but that deposit's been recycled for 40 years and needs realistically $130 uranium to make it fly. There's a reason why in 1980, when uranium was over $40, which is over $125 per pound inflation adjusted today, it didn't work back then. It's probably not gonna work this cycle either. So what I'm just trying to educate people on is be careful of the bankers, be careful of the risk, be careful of the politicians, because the one thing that they have done consistently in the past is raise taxes. And more so than ever before, will these foreign companies, meaning North American and Australian listed companies who are in these emerging markets or what I call negative swap line nations be a target. And it's not gonna just be based off of cash flow and worker safety and, and that they're gonna be punished on the environmental side. The, um, in Argentina, the, one of the ministers came out and said, these foreign companies are a environmental disaster. Look what they're doing to us. We need to own 50% or a majority of these assets because we will produce at a higher environmental standard than them. Really? Uh, no, the North American and Australian companies have the highest standard of environmental standards in mining in the world, but it's a perfect lipstick talk for a politician to steal. So be careful about this massive coming trend that no one's pricing in their financial models. So if you're constructive on gold, you're going to get a bigger bang for your buck. You know, you can buy gold or, you know, like a equivalent, an ETF. But what you're going to do is the multiple. So the streaming and royalty companies trade at a higher premium than, say, the miners. And as you go down the food chain, as there's growth and development, the mid-tiers you're going to get a higher bang if they execute on their business plans. So for me personally, where my money is and my, my track records outperformed every other gold guy in the business, whether you like my style or not, it doesn't matter. What I've proven is you don't need to go down the food chain. You don't need to increase your risk exposure to get incredible returns, meaning you don't need to uh, invest and, and believe in a geologist with a box of crayons that colors on a map that essentially looks like your kid's, you know, grade one project and is never, you know, is unblemished with success. So rather than taking these incredible risks, the massive pools of capital in, in the passive funds, in these green bonds, this incredible growth sector, they're not going to go down the food chain. They're totally happy with the de-risk you know, North American, off the highway, low cost of power, that is a low, ES, uh, low foot carbon footprint, high ESG standards. And those companies are gonna attract a lower cost of capital, which means higher margins of free cash flow. Um, that's where my money is, and that's where I think the smart money is positioning itself. The impact of ESG and green bonds. So I'm not saying to invest in green bonds. Green bonds are the largest growing sector in the bond market. Uh, since 2013, it's grown over 26-fold. It's 60% year-over-year growth in a pool of capital. It's over trillions of dollars. And what these bonds are looking at, as the boomers have shifted, and now the millennials are the largest workforce numbers and are becoming the largest pool of capital, 
their capitalism is a different version of capitalism from their parents, the boomers. You know, we're getting into a zone of what I call stakeholder capitalism. So when you really think about this and say, okay, it's not just about returns. And here's the wild part of it. The companies that have had a high standard of E, the environmental, S, the social, and the G, the governance aspect, have outperformed the companies that haven't. Why? Now, why? Is it because a bunch of old white dudes in a boardroom, a bunch of miners and oil guys got together and said, yeah, you know what? All of a sudden, now that we're rich, we want to take care of the environment. Now, no, that's not the reason. The reason is, is low cost of capital. Let me explain. So these massive pools of capital, trillions of dollars, are looking for areas that meet its criteria, which is on the ESG standpoint. So companies that have to commit to lowering their carbon emissions, that make a commitment to have 40% of their workforce female by 2030. Uh, they have to have 10% of the local indigenous minorities in the executive branch. Those are the type of things that they have to legislate and mandate. And if the company meets that, they get a low cost of capital. Now in the resource sector, anywhere between four and 5% is, is seen as low cost of capital. If they don't meet that criteria, just like in financial covenants and bonds, if they violate the covenant, their cost of capital goes up. So it's about skin in the game for the management. And they're doing this because not only from the bond market, but large pools of capital are going to be attracted to these companies because they have to. They have this ESG mandate. You look at the coal sector, what happened to coal? It got slaughtered by over 90% in the last decade. They even delisted the coal ETF. Why? Because it's about pools of capital. The cost of capital for the companies was too high. So where I see this whole sector going is we're just at the beginning of the impact. And you know, I remember when I was financing unconventional companies back in 2006, we built Europe's largest shale and oil gas company. And at the time I had to explain what fracking was and it was unconventional, blah, blah, blah. Today it's just conventional. It's just what we do, multi-stage fracks. I remember when I talk about a 16 stage frack in 2008, people thought I was talking about science fiction. Today you're doing talking about 128 stage fracks or zipper fracks that you don't even blink at that. That's just normal, Murphy's law. So what's gonna happen now is more and more resource companies, and, and, and we're just talking about 10%. So there's over 5,200 publicly listed companies in North America and Europe with a market cap over a billion dollars. Less than 10% have come out with a plan to reduce their carbon emissions and have an ESG plan. So we're in the early days. Now, why are they doing that? Well, because they want to put it out there, attract this lower cost of pool of capital. For example, um, about two weeks ago, a very average mid-tier energy company overnight did a $750 million uh, transaction in the green bond market. And this cost of capital should have been double digits, but because they committed to reducing their carbon footprint by 30% by 2030, by committing to uh, have 40% females uh, employed by 2030, and I think it was 5% of the indigenous in the executive branch, they get a cost of capital around 5%. And that's a trend. Uh, last week was the first oil company that came out with a net neutral oil production so they can claim net zero. Why did they do that? Because now by being certified, they went in and offset their emissions. They got this attraction, not just from the green bond market, but in the share price, they got all this pool of capital coming to it. 
And the guys that don't do that aren't going to have those pools of capital from the bond market and the equity market come in. And as passive money is now the majority in the market, the what was unconventional in you know the energy business in 2006 is just normal today. That's where we're going in 10 or 15 years where you have to have an ESG plan. You have to reduce your carbon emissions. You have to uh, diversify and, and, and meet those criteria. If you don't, your cost of capital will go up. You, and just like what happened to the coal sector, you're going to be wiped out. So that's why you're going to see the early stages of this you know, r revolution. So when I mentioned that less than 10% of the 5,200 companies with over a billion market cap that are publicly listed in North America and Europe have come out with a plan. They haven't started executing that plan. It's probably less than 2% that have actually started executing the plan. Now remember, on the financial balance sheet, just like if you have a tailings pond or a bond or your environmental liability, that's a liability. The carbon emissions is going to be legislated within the decade that that's a liability. Companies are going to have to meet that. Right now, there's over 2,000 companies in that pool of 5,000 that have to report their S1 emissions. That's direct emissions caused by the direct activity. So if I'm an oil company and I drill a well and I pump up that oil, you can now accurately, without any debate, using the technology at hand today, actually measure the carb direct carbon emissions caused by that activity. Companies like Shell, you mentioned the super major oils. Shell's probably the leading one in the, the big oil. Uh, BP tries to pretend they are, but they're really playing catch up. Um, for example, I published in my research all the big, last year I was talking about all this, and I published a chart just showing that if you take every carbon credit, remember this all started in 1997 with the Kyoto Protocol, if you take all the credits ever created just a few of the oil companies to go net neutral for one year would consume all of the credits created. So this is a huge growth sector. Someone like Shell is probably, they need north of 100 million uh, tons a year of carbon offsets to go net neutral. And these companies are making these commitments. And if they don't meet it, these pools of capital are going to punish them, both in the bond market and the equity market. So. It's, it's not starting with the juniors, it's starting with the big caps because it's a big pool of capital. So if you look at someone like, you take the, uh, the green bond ETFs, which are publicly listed, one of the top 10 holdings of that is Home Depot. Um, let's really think about that. They may have good social governance, and, 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 but what about the environmental aspect? Most of those gadgets are, are, are made in China. China's the largest emitter of pollution on the planet. Not only that, if you take every OECD nation combined, China still makes more pollution than all of those OECD nations combined. So even though Home Depot is trying to make a direct impact, they're a massive facilitator of the pollution and, and their exposure isn't really being offset properly. So as more companies like Shell are doing more to offset and they're doing the right things, um, that pool of capital that has nowhere to go, so they're like, well, their Home Depot's kind of ESG, uh, that capital is going to go into other companies. So it's going to be competing for a pool of capital. So the days of just financial metrics to invest what I call capitalism 1.0 or our parents' capitalism, uh, that's coming to an end. Now you have to have all those, but it's also all of these other metrics that the boomers never really incorporated that are going to be competing for that pool of capital. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The oil and gas sector. Like I mentioned earlier, the companies that have a high ESG reporting standard and are executing on that standard are outperforming companies. Just like I've been to, I've, for 10 years ago, I wrote about how when you go to a mine, look around. If it's a dirty mine, if it's messy, unorganized, if the, if the hall roads aren't, you know, fine crushed rock, all those little details, you know, their tires are going to be chopped up more. And, and, and you look at the safety standards of the mine. A messy mine and, and an unorganized mine usually have higher uh, safety issues, more LTIs, long-term incidences, and that means lower uh, cash flows, less profits. And, and, and in, the, in the oil patch and in the resource sector, it's been proven that companies that are effectively doing this are outperforming the companies or not. Now, the conventional wisdom is, oh, crap, we got to go and, you know, train women to do men's job or we got to train the indigenous local community to do what you know we're bringing in expats who've been doing it for 35 years traveling from venezuela or whatever anywhere in latin america or middle east that's a completely wrong outlook what is being shown is yes there's a cost to it but the arb the opportunity by reducing your cost of capital and the massive flows of equity capital that are looking for those mandated aspects, the cost to do it versus the benefit is so outweighing that that's why Shell and all these guys are doing it. Yes, they get to feel good. Yes, they get to get the benefits that, hey, we're, we're trying to be net zero. We're, we're, we're doing the right things, but it's all about the, the balance sheet. That's the real benefit now the externalities of that, of diversifying your workforce, improving the living standards of the the locals, those are all positives and and that's the trend. The trend is your friend. And the executives that don't get it, and remember, I'm I'm the largest investor in this sector, uh, those guys are done. They just don't know it. They're walking zombies. And and, and that old school mentality, um, that's probably, if you're looking to invest in the sector, flip through their deck. And if they have no plan for that, you can basically take their cost of capital and multiply it by some, by two, by some versus someone who, who does have that. So uh, it's a good quick filter for someone learning the business. So the publicly listed North American Europe, Europe's actually ahead of North America. Uh, North America is a bit ahead of Australia. Um, they're, they're starting Exxon's come out and, 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 and mentioned a plan. Shell's doing a good job. Uh, Shell's the leader in the oil patch, I would say. Uh, BP's up there, uh, but it's actually the state-owned oil companies, the Rosnefs, uh, you know, the, the companies owned the Venezuela, PDVSA, um, they're behind because, you know, they're state-owned, they, they don't run efficiently to begin with. Um, most of their assets were expropriated by American oil companies. So those are the ones that are the slowest. It's the state-owned oil companies. Uranium. So the uranium markets are really, uh, I, I would almost compare uranium investors to crypto investors. Um, you know, I get more hate when I talk about uranium because you don't need to invest in 95% of the sector. It's complete nonsense. Um, 
permitting a uranium mine is probably the hardest mine to permit in the world, number one. Number two, um, so many of these people focus on pounds in the ground. Okay, uh, that's just the start. Uh, look at the infrastructure. Look at the actual, there, there's, there's areas that I've been to. You know, after doing this for 20 years, you've kind of been there, done that. But there's areas that don't even have mining laws for uranium to build the mine. And, and these exploration companies are promoting these assets. And you just sit there and you're going, okay, so now that you find it, then what? So work backwards, right? And, and I've, for years I've been saying this, and we've crushed it in the uranium sector. Nobody can touch our performance in the uranium sector. Why? Keep it simple. So... You know, great is king. You know, imagine if I could say you can get 10 ounces per ton gold. Well, that's what they're mining in the Athabasca Basin, right? And a few years ago, I talked about chemical. Well, that's ripped. It's done exceptionally well. And the management team are good. Tim and Grant, they're good guys. I know them. They're focus factor, and they're, they're the, the elephants in the game. Now, the Athabasca Basin's in Saskatchewan and Canada. That's a great place to start. But also be careful on CapEx. You know, people, how, how, do, how do the regulators... Uranium is about $30 a pound. If I told you uh, the gold market is using $2,500 or $3,000 gold to develop this mine, people would laugh at that gold company. But yet somehow in the uranium market, these financial reports, these engineering models, these feasibility studies are okay using $50 uranium. Okay, uh, use $30 and see what works. And what I'm trying to get at is the numbers and the math matters. So even within a good area, you can't just blanket the uranium. Then you can go to the U.S. And, and I've always said, look, the U.S. at once was the largest producer of uranium in the world in the 80s. Obviously, it dwindled down as the Soviet Union collapsed. It was a hell of a lot cheaper to use former Soviet Union, downblended, bring it in. Today, the Americans essentially produce nothing. It's all imports. Um, where the advantage of Kazataprom and, 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 and the Russians essentially, and the Uzbeks is the FX, right? So because of the currency um, advantage, because the projects are already built. Remember, foreigners built these assets. They now are clawing back the ownership of it, and they produce in their local currency, which is being devalued to the U.S. dollar, and then they sell in the U.S. dollar. So $30 uranium to them is like 55 60 a few years ago, so net, net okay. But if you're in the U.S., Australia, uh, you don't get that benefit. Number two, why do I want to go and permit a uranium mine, which we all know is extremely difficult, when if you're smart and savvy, you can work backwards and go to things that are already built and permitted, and the replacement cost would be higher than you can buy it, and I buy at a discount to NAV. That, that's, that's all you have to do. So am I financing you know, geologist dreams in the middle of uh, Namibia? No. It, have we done exceptionally well by keeping it simple? Uh, I call it wiser uranium, you know, ISR in situ recovery. Well, when you go to places like uh, in the U.S., um, Wyoming, where ISR is great potential, it's cold. You're moving water. You have header houses. You got to reclaim that. These header houses have concrete. Think of a house that has radioactive concrete material. There's a big cost to that. Well, if you go to Texas, you got warm ISR. So I, I coined that as Wiser, W-I-S-R, and no header houses. The pipes are on the ground. You hook up the header house to a pickup truck. It's just a steel rack of valves and water in solution to, to recover the, the uranium, and, and you move it around to the next 
production zone. So there's costs, advantages, and, and that's all I have to say about uranium. Just stick to the management teams that know what they're doing. Uh, don't have 15 other deals, you know, gold here, lithium here, cobalt there, uranium here. Um, just focus on true uranium guys. And, I, and again, the royalty game is the best bang for your buck because it's about cost of capital, right? The cost of capital for a uranium company, they trade at, you know, if you can buy a, a royalty company in precious metals or energy at, at NAV, they trade at a higher multiple. So their cost of capital is advantage to the miners. That's the whole game there. That's why companies like Franco Nevada and Silver Wheaton have done so well. Um, and, and eventually, the, the left in the U.S. will accept that nuclear power is a prudent, safe solution as part of the energy matrix of the future. Um, but, you know, I sat down with the CEO of America's largest nuclear reactor builder, and I walked him through, you know, they were pitching me for money, and they're saying, well, you know, we're, our production's net zero. And I said, yeah, but look, you got a lot of concrete when you start, and look, look at the, when you build this, so why don't you go net neutral and offset from the start? they're starting to do that. And as they get going with that, the, that pool of capital I talked about, the green bonds and, and, and the big, you know, the conscious capital or stakeholder capital, will look at that from the equity standpoint. So it's still early days in uranium, uh, but that's where it's going. You know, we have them in our newsletter. Um, we financed the IPO of one, we're up 400%, um, you know, and I haven't sold a share. I told my subscribers to take a Katusa free ride, which is all about reducing risk. Um, do I think it goes higher? Of course I do. That's why I haven't sold a share, but I'm, I'm in a position where I don't have to sell shares and I have a longer term horizon. Depends who you are, what your risk tolerance is, what your time horizon is. Um, is the uranium game, it, it, you know, it attracts a, uh, a very different, you know, there's a saying in the gold market, you got gold bugs and then you got silver bugs, which are like gold bugs on steroids. Then you got uranium bugs, which are, you know, silver bugs on crack cocaine. Um, they, they don't necessarily listen to facts or fundamentals and that whole diamond hands. Um, be careful what you're investing in. Um, you know, it's a very small sector. Like when, when, when you're talking about uh, the uranium sector, uh, it really is a super small, like fraction of the energy sector from these exploration development company standpoint compared to the oil companies or base metal producers. So uh, it gets a lot of attention and you don't really need 10 uranium companies in your portfolio. Pick two or three of the best and you're going to do exceptionally well. What are your thoughts on lithium and rare earths? I don't really have many thoughts. I financed two lithium mines in the past. Uh, there's no shortage of lithium. Um, the shortage is execution and, and of the production. Lithium is a uh, almost like a oligopoly three miners kind of control the market. So unless you have a, you're invested in a true world-class mine that they want to own, uh, they'll price you out. Uh, so be careful in the lithium market. There's no shortage of it at all. Very close friend of mine who's kind of the main uh, person for the, uh, the DOJ and the DOE for rare earths. Uh, him and I used to go in 2006 and seven and actually buy these projects. Um, we actually bought in 2016, was it 2017? We bought uh, all of the, you know, there's a whole series of rare earths. You got the lights, you got the heavies, and we bought two of the rare earths, two of them, uh, all of the refined uh, available concentrate at Five Nines Con available outside of China in the world. And we, we made a big investment. It turned out really well. Again, the rare earth market, the, the look, 
it's obviously going to be growing and it's super important. But within the you know 13 core and 17 other uh, in the series of rare earth companies, they're replaceable. They're interchangeable. You know, if one gets too expensive, they can create alchemy to mix the different mixtures and come up with a different uh, formula. That's one issue. The other issue is these companies, from an investor standpoint, investors are like, oh, they got a rare earth mine. The rare earth market is so small. Uh, if you thought the uranium market was, rare earths are even smaller. And it's so vertically integrated that these companies talk about their, you know, their, their, their flow uh, metrics and how they're going to go from exploration to production. But then what? Who are you going to send it to? You know, does Panasonic want those rares for their batteries? If so, how long will it take for them to put it into their production capacity and, and the way it goes? So it's a very different market than, say, when I built a copper mine, I send my con to Japan, they send me a check. There was no vertical integration of, you know, our, is it the right mix of copper, con for this specific pipe of copper? You know, but in the rare earths, that's the issue. So be very careful. Uh, and, and again, you know, we picked right on one stock that I think is the way to play it. Other than that, I don't have much to go for. What do you make of copper's tremendous rise? Look, for years I've been like, I'm a founder of Canada's third largest copper producer. For years I've been a bull on copper. And, and this is not new that it's the new oil. Um, it, it, of course, it, it's growth. But what is kind of crazy to me in today's market as of what's today, May 20th, 2021, is companies that, you know, my investors, my subscribers and myself were lead investors in a copper asset that we had all the results and everything. And just four years ago at 50 cents are trading at $10 today. So I tell people, take a free ride. There's nothing like wrong with taking money off the table. It, this, the companies have really gotten ahead of themselves from a valuation standpoint, in my opinion. There's no doubt that copper is going to stay strong, the demand for it. But forget, like, China can play around with, with, with this. When the government mandates that the smelters pull back on, you know, there's something called TCRCs, the treatment charge and refining charges in, 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 in the con that you put your material through, um, that gives less flexibility to the, to the producers of this. Secondly, will China play around and dump in the market? Expect the Chinese to do what's in the best interest of the Chinese, and they're going to follow the government mandate. So, you know, once you start getting a four and a half dollar copper, there is no shortage of copper out there. Now, getting it to, to the market, building it—that—that's an issue. But um, don't fool yourself. There, there's assets in Russia uh, that I've been to, in in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's a uh, Iran. Iran has incredible copper assets. So. What I'm trying to get at, again, be very careful of a geologist with a box of crayons and a big dream and how he's going to build this copper mine in the middle of a jungle with no infrastructure. Um, you know, for example, last summer in August, I was the first to write up on Solaris Copper, a company that our subscribers got for 50 cents and we got in at a buck 50 again. The thing hit $12 the other day. There's nothing wrong with taking money off the table. Um, but again, I, I, the biggest mistake I see retail investors and new investors in the resource market is they buy the hype of, well, Goldman Sachs said it's the new oil. Well, nothing's changed in five years other than Goldman Sachs wants to make fees on investing in copper companies. So um, just be careful. It's super hot right now. I think there's way better value in the gold producers. I think there's a way better value in, in you know, playing the ARB and the carbon sector. A year ago, I wrote a whole report on how carbon credits are bigger than 
oil. Uh, people kind of sit there and go, what the hell? Can't the government just issue these carbon credits? There's a whole market developing there, and it's almost like an invisible bull market. And essentially, when everybody's talking about copper, everybody's talking about whatever commodity, um, when Goldman Sachs says, you know, it's going to double from here, that's when you at least you take a free ride and don't have any risk capital to it because commodities are super volatile. Remember, in 2011, we had $4 copper, then it went down to $1.20. And now we're, you know, we hit $4.75 recently. So it's very cyclical. But remember, just because the commodity is doing well, the company you're investing in, and most of these companies, you know, 80% of the public resource companies don't produce anything. They're, they're, they're exploring or trying to develop, which means they're a price taker, not a price maker. So be careful in what you're investing in. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. America and China's relationship. America's foreign policy for the last 40 years, you know, since essentially Nixon, uh, was laying out a cooperative engagement with China. The whole globalization, uh, setting up the factories in China using their low cost of labor, their government funded lignite dirty electricity um, was capable to this massive boomer growth in America and Europe. Remember, the number one customer of China's production of stuff is America. Number two is the European nations. Um, and, and everyone kind of took a blind eye. The Walton family became worth hundreds of millions, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars by being facilitators of that, you know, always, always low prices guaranteed. Um, and everyone kind of took a blind eye to it. People focused more in the 90s and early 2000s about the child labor laws, not really understanding the massive pollution aspects. To put things into perspective, every year, China's consumption of concrete, its emissions, its carbon emissions from just concrete is greater than every car on the planet combined for a whole year of emissions. But people don't really talk about that. And things are going to change. And, you know, what did COVID do? Well, one thing we can surely say is the government opened up the, 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 the piggy bank and there's no shortage of printing money. Number two, supply chains were severely stressed and a rethinking of that strategy came out. Number three, you look at America and say, wait a second, America 10 years ago, you know, the cost of green energy was expensive. Uh, today, Texas is the Saudi Arabia of, of wind energy. It's cheap, cheaper than, you know, they can run coal or natural gas anywhere else in North America. That's a fact. And people keep saying, well, it's government subsidies, this and that. Okay, well, what if now those government subsidies, the product, the material, the silica, the technology is advanced where costs are down over 90% from just a decade ago, and it's going to continue to go that way. The knock on green energy would be, oh, but what happens when it's not windy or if it's not sunny? True. Those are issues, but just like anything, you know, like in the nuclear sector, you had Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, and now we're in Gen 4 reactors. Things evolve and change and get better. Uh, I do believe we'll get to a point where technology will have utility scale batteries. I wrote about this five years ago, but it's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to take time. Me personally, am I investing in that sector? No, because that's a different type of uh, stuff. 
Will it be Tesla? Will it be Panasonic? Who knows? It might be someone we've never even heard of. But the point is, is there is clean, cheap power available in America. But because what, what's happened, America's kind of, look at the aging infrastructure. You know, one in four bridges in America are uh, inoperable. Like they really need to be rebuilt. Well, we know that the inf infrastructure stimulus starts at two trillion. That's not the final number, that's just the beginning. So we're gonna see the greatest stimulus packages from the government. But you have the AI, you have the robotics, you have the low cost of green bonds and, and these investors that are looking for this simple changes in consumer dynamics america can produce by retooling its manufacturing and compete with the low cost of products in china and you're going to see many sectors do exactly that you look at the semiconductor industry in taiwan of course why they go to arizona part of that de-risk taiwan is at risk of being the next hong kong but importantly you you have it's economic to expand into america today so this Going from a cooperative engagement to a competitive engagement, Trump really shattered that, but he didn't have a good plan to execute it. Biden's administration came in and did they change anything? Did they try to kiss and make up with the Chinese? No. So what's next? Well, uh, Secretary Blinken is, I actually think like I'm apolitical. I don't like any politicians, right? And, and I'm Canadian. So, uh, you know, where I, I'm not on the left or the right in America, I'm just a guy looking to make a lot of money and have done well at it. But what I, Blinken, he was educated in France. Right? When his parents got divorced, you know, he was a rich kid in New York. And when his parents left, his mom married a very wealthy lawyer and he was educated in France, went back to Harvard, to the US to go to Harvard. And he's got the perfect pedigree. So, I think the biggest mistake Trump did was he, 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 he rattled his base by saying, we're going to make the Europeans pay for their share of NATO. But then he rattled the cage with China and said, we're going from cooperation to com competition. We're going to compete with you. But he pissed off all of the Europeans. So he didn't have them as, as combined. So the Chinese did the perfect strategy. Because remember, the Chinese are playing on a multi-year strategy. They're not playing election cycles. They're playing 20-year cycles. Chinese just sat back and waited and let Trump make his moves. So, you know, when you're playing someone in chess, you, you, you see a crazy move and you're like, whoa, that's so unconventional. This guy must be a genius. We didn't expect that move. Then you see the second move and you're like, oh, that's really weird too. Then the third move and you go, oh, this guy's just a fucking idiot. So that's where the Chinese realized that this foreign policy that Trump had wasn't really thought through and he didn't have the European as a cohesive number one and number two customer of China that could really kipple it. China just played Europe off of, uh, off of the US. Biden's administration did not try to repair the relationship with China. What they did was they right off the bat, the first plan was reestablish the relationships with France his hometown, remember the, the snooty French look at Blinken as one of their own. Then he went to Italy, kissed and made up with the Italians, then he went to Germany. You get those big three, the rest of the Europeans will follow. So that is the strategy moving forward. And, and part of the rise of America is this, you know, I call it positive swap line nations on one side with the Americans, those are the true allies, hence the European nations are key to that. And, and trust me, when, when the shit hits the fan, those nations tap those swap lines. And then there's those who don't, like India. India, uh, Prime Minister Modi came out and said he's got swap line envy, he, he wants to get it. Well, where are the big tech companies investing in right now? India. So they're, they're, they're starting to go that route. India is probably the next country to get a swap line. 
But more importantly, India showed America, right? They had the conflict with China uh, uh, on their border. Uh, they're showing that we're, we're, we're going to, we're here. We want to be on the American side. So India's there, Japan's there, Korea's on that side. And as this industrial re-revolution is going to happen, and as consumers, this carbon emission cost, China's not going to pay for it themselves because they're going to say, well, we're producing things for you and you've been doing this for 100 years. It's not fair for us to pay. And you're correct. But what if something as simple as Amazon goes and in your profiles click you know, you know, today you can click any type of thing, information. You can just say, I click carbon neutral, made in America, clean, green. Or if you're in Europe, I want low carbon footprint. And just like they put labels on all food a few years ago to show the calorie content, within a decade, every product is going to show. And, and the technology is there. The AI is already there. The incredible data power that these companies have, they have all this. They know where the material comes from. They know which concentrates are using. They have all this stuff. This is not new. And once the American consumer realizes this, and then down the chain, the mid-tiers, the small companies, they're going to purchase these low-carbon uh, products. And then by being certified there, they're going to attract the capital, lower cost of capital, and the green bonds. That's unconventional today. But as it keeps growing, it's going to be just the way it is. It's conventional. So that's part of the rise of America. The remaking of the world order is the new allegiances that are going up. Uh, Trump really failed with Iran. And, 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 and it got so bad in Iran that the Iranian had to take the, the deal that the Chinese made. Basically, China picked up a wounded dog and, and Iran has so much potential. One of the best demographics, educated population, but the foreign policy was very failed. So remaking this world order, you know, uh, we the Americans alienated Iran and alienated a few other nations that have basically now gone into this other camp because we are in a G2 world. Then I get into this whole, everyone thinks we're at MMT. We're not. That's just the fact. We're, I think before we get to MMT, we're going to play out the cycle of FMC, fiscal monetary coordination. And it's not the first time America did it. When was the last time they did it? Well, it was the longest serving Fed uh, head ever. And it was what led to America's golden happy days, the, the beautiful 50s, the expansion to the West when guys like Kaiser became the Tesla of today was Kaiser back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And the expansion to the West those were all government uh, catalyst funds. That's fiscal monetary coordination. That's where we're going and that's where we are today. So before we get into MMT and everyone's ready to trash on the US dollar, um, don't count out the US dollar. And I think we're in the early days of the rise of America. It's multiple vectors all aligning together. And the irony of all this is whether you're on the far left, you know, you're a Greta fan and there's too much pollution in the world, or you're a hardcore far right, that all that matters is the numbers. The only thing that links the left to the right right now are the economics on the carbon emission, the catalyst and the benefits that are going to come about it. If you go to websites like carboncredits.com, they lay all this stuff out. It's kind of like they're so ahead. It's like the Bloomberg terminal of green energy and carbon emissions. It, that's where we're going. And yes, it's early days. And, you know, people look at uh, carbon credits and they think of it, you know, well, when it started, it was a bureaucratic UN led mission, no skin in the game. They didn't get the buy-in of the corporations. It was early days, just like anything, you know? Um, so in 1997, 180 nations signed up to the Kyoto protocol, zero, absolutely zero uh, met their targets. 
Well, it's a bunch of politicians. They don't even work there anymore. There's no skin in the game. They did a bunch of stupid programs. They caught, created lots of inflationary uh, damage in Brazil. There's all these case studies about it. What the Paris Protocol of 2015 really did right was they learned from their mistakes, just like, you know, even though it was led by bureaucrats, they did learn from their mistakes, but they were able to start slowly with corporate buy-in. And then at the same time, all these multiple other vectors, the stars are lining up where this massive capital of uh, low cost capital, but requiring a reduction of emissions is providing an environment that more and more corporations are gonna tie on. You know, who would have thought 10 years ago that Shell would be actively trying to work out a carbon neutral or massive reduction? BP rebranding itself spends more time on green energy. Look, I, in 2015, I was the largest investor uh, in America's largest geothermal project, largest investor in Canada's largest green energy company. And I created something called Green Barrels of Oil. And I sat with these oil executives in 2015. I said, guys, your cost of capital, you could buy up this whole green energy sector and, and not have any dilution. You wouldn't even have to report it to your shareholders It's less than 20%. Fast forward six years, these oil companies got slaughtered. These green energy companies have done incredibly well. The tables have churned. Now you're gonna have green barrels of oil, like the Jibos as I call them, I created this formula for it, it's all on my website. The green energy companies are going to buy out the oil companies, they're gonna go net net neutral and use that oil cash flow to reinvest into GBO. So you take a BOE to the free cash flow to increase GBOEs. And you look at that and say, now the cost of capital for the green energy is multiple times lower than the traditional carbon energy sources. And they're under the radar. So they realize that they missed the boat. They got to play serious catch up. And the only way to do that is to fund projects and offset their emissions. So that's the beginning of where we're at. And you start looking at the total addressable market. We're talking about already today, bigger than oil. And oil is the biggest market in the world, but nobody's talking about this. And again, you want to invest in things. When I started doing this last year, you want to invest in things that nobody's talking about. You know, by the time someone's going on Saturday Night Live and I'm going to piss off a lot of the crypto guys and friends of mine, that's probably mainstream, right? I'm not saying it's not going to, uh, do well further, but you're, it's well known. Right now, nobody is talking about this ARB in the carbon emission market. And, and even for me, it reminds me a lot of 2015 when I would be talking about investing in green energy and how much like the economics of it and the resource sector is like, man, none of this works. What happened to you? Uh, when did you go green? It was like a religious battle I was taking on. I go, guys, it's about making money. And all these investments went three, four, five fold on big utilities. Like we're not talking about a little exploration company going, we're talking about big dividend payers went up three, four, five fold. And these are utilities. Um, today, I've had huge pushback by the industry when I'm talking about like what, what's going on in the carbon sector and carbon rangers and carbon neutral, all these different aspects. And, and there's huge pushback. Ah, you know, it doesn't work, it isn't that. Okay, those are the dinosaurs and they're gonna be left behind because they're gonna die out because higher cost of capital. It's that simple. What companies will be at the forefront of green energy? 
you know, I've written about how we made a huge score on Brookfield, BEP. They're kind of like the Exxon of green energy. They're the world's largest green energy producer. Uh, the Chevron of green energy, America's largest uh, green energy producer would be NextEra. Uh, they've, they've done, and, and their cost of capital, you compare it to any of the oil companies, is so much lower. And the pools of capital available for them, a company like Brookfield, you know, uh, Mark Carney, the former governor of Bank of uh, England and the former uh, uh, governor of the Bank of Canada joined on to Brookfield because he sees the power of that balance sheet and the pools of capital. And, and his agenda, guys, is to reduce carbon. It's, it's The writing is on the wall. And you can start there. It all depends on what your investment horizon is and your tolerance for risk and all that. But th there's companies out there that are attracting majors, like super majors, some of the biggest companies in the world that people aren't even talking about, because what they're doing is so under the radar. And it's about, you know, you can produce things like blue carbon credits that nobody's really talking about. Uh, the growth, you know, if I was me 20 years ago, and, and I could say something to myself, restarting in today's age, and you want to become super rich, um, I would be focusing on reducing the carbon emissions and become a, you know, and you don't need a PhD in geology or engineering or physics or nuclear physics or whatever. This is about if you have a passion and you want to be hardworking, I believe the first trillionaire ever, the richest person ever will be the one that cracks the code on this emissions. And there is so much money available to this that it, it like you take things like blue carbon, there's massive opportunities around the world, which will have huge second order effects that blue carbon credits are going to be the gold, you know, of the carbon credit world, not all carbon credits are equal, you can do you can buy it on the ETS, the EU ETS, which is like, I don't know, 50 euros or 60 US dollars. That's one way of doing it. That's like buying gold. That's the lazy guy's way of doing it. There's way bigger ways to play it. But you got to dig down and if you're an entrepreneur watching this, mark my words in 10 years, if you're looking for a sector where you're like, okay, what's the next big crypto or what's the next big gold sector? Um, what's something that you can become a massive player within two or three years with a very small uh, startup cost? It, it, it's creating these carbon credits. Carbon credits are a commodity. It's the ultimate Giffen good. Uh, they don't teach this in our economics anymore, but Giffen good is essentially something that, you know, essentially has no substitute. It's not like I can create a nitrogen credit or a, um, you know, an equivalent to two carbon uh, offsets. There is not. And what Giffen's good really comes down to, and everyone should pay attention, as the price goes up, the demand actually goes up. So it's a, a, against traditional economic laws. And what's so interesting about this is as someone like Shell starts going and locking it up, their cost of capital goes lower. The pool of equity available attracts more to that than say Exxon. Exxon's going to sit there and go, shit, we got to do that too. They're going to want now, but the price keeps going up higher and they're going to want more. And then as remember, less than 9% of the companies above a billion market cap have announced plans just ideas, a commitment to do something in the future. It's like me telling my wife, I'm going to start working out next week. That's the equivalent. And then if you know me, look at me, I didn't. So that's where these companies are at. Now, going and starting to commit to do that, that's where this is going to get incredible. We're talking about a, a total addressable market in the trillions 
every year. Tell us more about the carbon trade. So blue carbon is where I see incredible growth. And blue carbon, yes, there's forests on land, but there's also forests in the ocean. And, you know, I, I had people push back on this. And if you take where like bays in Mexico or Brazil, Indonesia, Australia, there's over 14 million acres of, say, mangrove uh, forest. A mangrove forest is about 70% underwater, 30% above water, and it's where the seawater meets the freshwater. Now, uh, that's like a perfect micro habitat for shrimp farming, meeting China's demand, and they're doing massive deforestation of these natural uh, mangrove habitats. Now, what's really interesting about, say, a mangrove forest, what I call blue carbon, compared to, say, a rainforest on, like whether you're talking about the Amazon rainforest or in BC or Pacific Northwest is also a rainforest on ground, is... Um, the carbon that gets absorbed in, in, in a blue carbon or an aqua forest absorbs up to about 10 times the carbon per same square area as a land forest or a rainforest. Also, what's really interesting is because it's underwater and it's in the peat in under the water, it stays away from the atmosphere up to 10 times longer than on the forest on land because of the natural cycles of forests which then recycles into the atmosphere. So you get these huge benefits of why you want to focus on, you know, if you've got, uh, let's say, a 100,000 acre uh, mangrove forest versus a 100,000 rainforest on land, you're gonna get up to 10 times more credits per that square area. Think of it as like a 10 times higher grade gold mine. On top of that, the carbon that you're taking out or sequestering stays in the ground up to 10 times longer than on ground. So that's a net benefit. What are the other net benefits of this? Well, by conserving these and getting certified by independent auditors, essentially, um, like Vera or whoever, they, they you get these bonus, uh, you know, second order effects like the corals, the algae, the sharks, uh, the whales, the sea turtles, and all the other aquamarine habitat that gets to prosper there. And then you have the insurance costs, like the, these mangroves are, a, 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 there's kind of like a filter for the environment. And we know that we're getting a higher intensity of storms. It's almost like a great wall of protection for a lot of these coastal regions. So if you're a company that's looking to offset, if you're going to go into the market, those blue carbon credits have all of these free dividends that you can really talk about from, you know, from an actuarial scientist standpoint, you're reducing the cost of insurance for the locals and the corporations, which is good, but all you can actually, the technology is there to show how you're helping the sea turtles and, and all the, the marine habitat. But at the end of the day, it's about making money and you're getting up to 10 times the credits for that. So that's, that's an example of a difference between, you know, replanting a forest and, and the, but there's so many new areas. Uh, fuel switching. If you're, you know, there's areas I've been to that are diesel generated utilities, believe it or not, or mines. And if you can switch that carbon emitting electricity to from green, you're going to get offset costs. You see Delta Airlines is coming out and really pushing this agenda. Well, it's obvious when they take government bailouts, they're going to have to step up their game somehow to make the government feel good and the customers feeling good for failing so miserably. So there's different types of credits, like the airline's biggest areas, probably the Corsia credits. There's different types of sectors, just like in commodities, you have different type of metals. Uh, that's where we're going with in the carbon credit world. Um, now, I don't believe carbon credits are uh, a 
truly explain to everyone, not all carbon credits are equal and who verified them, you put them on the blockchain, you want newer credits, you don't want some of the stuff that who verified 10 years ago, those are still floating around, those are kinda, think of it as tungsten with gold plated, gold bars from China, I'm not sure you wanna buy those ones, but um, it's a sector that is growing and, and, and I can't emphasize, if I had a little brother who came out of university or didn't know what he was doing in his life, I say, you ain't coming to work in my world in commodities, like in gold or resources, you're going into this sector because it's gonna be the biggest growth sector on the planet. I lay it all out in a very detailed way at the, the conclusion of the rise of America are these sectors, like you think about 20 years ago, did anyone think the social media companies would have the influence that they do today? No, and that's where we're going with this new uh, rotation. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com